Let's continue with our sermon passage from 4.7 and now moving on to Ecclesiastes 5.1. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear, rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by as many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work? Of your hands. For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there's also vanity. But fear God. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in Psalm 119, 105, that thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We confess that in your name. Amen. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Ecclesiastes mirrors Genesis, as if Solomon wrote from its very pages. Even with creation teeming with life, God said it is not good that man should be alone. From our perspective, perhaps it's easy to see. I mean, how close can you really get with an animal, as affectionate as some may be? You cannot reason with an animal or be reasoned with by it. But not so obvious, have we considered that Adam always had his maker? Adam, the sinless man, communed with God in the Garden of Eden. And still God said it is not good that man should be alone. And so God made Eve, Adam's helper, companion, and wife. For reasons found deep in the wisdom of God, God knew that a good creation must include a relationship between his people and himself in worship, but also among those people personally in community. Last time in chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, I suggested the wise Solomon is on a journey, and it is best to engage with him in it for all 12 chapters. So tonight we turn with Solomon to community with our fellow man and communion with God in worship. As we have seen mostly in Sunday school, where we'll continue, Solomon finally brought God into view all the way in chapter 2, verse 24, after scarcely a mention through the first two chapters that saw the wisest of wise men and the most well-situated for the work try and try again to straighten the kinks out of a fallen creation while shoveling in the massive gaps at his feet, never straightened and never full. The story of the fall. Solomon despaired of hope. Then in 224, Solomon wrote his first so-called Carpe Diem verses, which children is Latin for seize the day or go make the best of it, doing the very best you can without delay. Solomon realized instead of trying to create his own garden of Eden and failing, he must be content in thankfulness for God's gifts as God sees fit to give them. 
Solomon and the reader learn that to enjoy his gifts is God's commandment. And remember those endless cycles in nature and human life from chapter 1? The sun also rises and sets and rises. The seas never full, but the rivers never empty. The eye and the ear never full, and speech inadequate to express Solomon's frustration at all the vanity and mystery. But then Solomon, having seized the day in the name of his creator and provider, launches into chapter 3, now understanding that the very same seasons and times, birth and death, and everything in between are ordained by God in beautiful ways, 3.11, for purposes under heaven known only to him. And now it seems enough for Solomon to know his creator and receive from his father's good hand. Yet Solomon knows in chapter 3 that God has put eternity in all of our hearts. So there is that natural yearning to understand his plan, God's plan, from beginning to end. But we were created, and so we are creatures, time-bound until our time expires, unable to find it all out. But it is this very prospect of death all around this powerful King Solomon that still troubles him. But now he sees something more. Oppression, wickedness in seats of justice, and sin in the place of righteousness. But then we learn of another time appointed at the end. A certain time and purpose for judgment by God of the righteous and the wicked. In which he will finally straighten out those kinks and fill in those gaps. We will conclude tonight with the beginning of chapter 5 which is all about God and vertical relationship with his people in worship. But first chapter four is all about people in horizontal relationship with one another in community. And in the first half of chapter four, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, there are a whole lot of sinful relations horizontally. Solomon again laments the tears of the oppressed as he could see no comforter for them. There's also the idea of only working to keep up with the Joneses. And if you were in Sunday school, you understand the bonus joke there. Also, the lazy sluggard who only rolls over on his bed because he won't love his neighbors enough to get out of doors and serve them. But at the far end of that spectrum, there's seen the workaholic who is way too busy and couldn't even hug his neighbors if he wanted to because his hands are so full of stuff with toil and grasping for the wind. Our sermon text begins in 4, 7. We'll read 4, 7, and 8. And we'll extend through 5, 7. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There's one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother Yet there's no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Solomon is still seeing vanity and enigmas under the sun. Remember Habel, vanity or mystery? In Hebrew, it's literally a breath or vapor that's gone too fast, a brevity and insubstantiality. 
Solomon longs to see real community, and he outlines the advantages of it, but while observing one who has chosen isolation, the opposite. This individual has chosen unwisely, kicking against the goads, against the creator's good intent for us as relational creatures. Craig Bartholomew here asks the question, if we have fully considered that our social natures were formed by God before sin entered the garden, not as an accident or result of sin, community was intentional and good. And it should not surprise us since we are made in the image of the God of three relational persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The individual in verse 8 has spurned not only his neighbor, but his God as well, to his own detriment. He has no companion by choice, had no time for a child. But you say, well, maybe he just never had a brother, which he couldn't really control. Nope. He ran the brother off, pushed him away as he could see nothing in the relationship for him. Verse 8 says, no end to all his labors, nor satisfied with riches of vanity and grave misfortune. And you're not wrong to wonder, talking about all this work and riches. It should hark back to Solomon's royal experiment in chapter 2, which failed in creating his own Garden of Eden. Makes you want to ask, exactly who are you describing, Solomon? Let's turn back to some other writing of Solomon in Proverbs 18. Verses that could have helped this isolated man. Proverbs 18, verse 1. A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 18:24. A man who has friends must, stick, must himself be friendly, lest we forget. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Shameful, isn't it, that despite his endless toil, all of his riches won't fill his eyes, eyes being the seat of desire. He cries more, more. He can't even blame his miserly existence on this big family he's supporting. He has no one. It's all for him, having forgotten the responsibility to his neighbor that comes with the gifts of God. Verse 8 also says, He never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Michael Eaton comments, it's not that the lone miser never asks that question, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good, but that he knows he'll never find the answer in his chosen life of isolation. He can only act as if there's someone to live and labor for. And a more lengthy quote from David Gibson that's just wonderful. It is possible to know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. So here is how we kill the evil at its root. Spend your money on others. Give it away. Do it regularly, gladly, generously, and you will be happy. When you provide for others, you are actually loving yourself because you're no longer alone. The value of life is not what you earn, but whom you relate to. 
It's not what you buy, but what you give. Life is gift, not gain. End quote. God calls his people back to community. The church is not this building. It's your brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the pews. If we are not going to be a community here, let it not be for, for lack of praying or trying. And the first prayer we might pray is not for my neighbors in the pews, but for my wicked fault-finding. We must love our neighbors rather than judge them. Matthew 7, 1 through 5 reads, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the plank from your brother's eye. Back in Ecclesiastes 4, we'll read 9 through 12. God commands his community to rise, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, community will arise. 9 through 12. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let's do some math. Two is greater than one. One is the null set of no value for companionship. One is less than two is less than three. Why is two greater than one? Verse nine, because the two have good reward for their labor as seen in the later verses. Particularly verse 11. Imagine two people stranded on the side of a freezing mountain in the snow, huddling together for warmth, because warmth is life, isn't it? After all, a live coal left alone loses its vital heat. Why is one the null set of no value for companionship? Verse 10, we will fall a lot. And there we will remain unable to advance. And you know, I'm not talking about a trip down into a ravine, despite my mountain analogy. I'm talking about personal sins, slips in judgment, depression, suicide. We lost a minister in this very presbytery to suicide a few years ago. And that should be a call to community. Have you considered saving a life from as pointless a death as Abel's by showing someone true value in human companionship? Abel's name in Hebrew is Habel, same as vanity, enigma, brevity, a life cut short. When an Abel in need comes along, we must already be living outside of ourselves, ready to pour into others. Now, times of solitude are important to regroup and be your best for others, most notably in our prayer closet, Bible study, or out of doors in his creation. Why is one less than two less than three? Verse 12, the picture of a lone travel traveler being assaulted by a brigand lying in wait. 
but two can stand him off. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. And a third, well, now we're talking community. The sense with the three-ply cord is if each of the three plies wrapped tightly around one another, intimately, connected in unity from one end completely to the other end, ready to do the job, bear the load with much more strength than a single ply standing alone. If one ply fails, they all fail together and are still there to pick each other up. Quite a contrast to the lonely miser. Ecclesiastes 4, 13 through 16. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon here relates another set of circumstances he had observed. And again, looking back at chapter 8 and the isolated man who gobbled up riches and worked himself to a miser's death. It's interesting that Solomon describes here another, ironically, much as himself, the old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. And it is interesting to turn back to Proverbs 18, as we did with the verse 8, isolated man, and see that other verses found in Proverbs 18 could have aided this old and foolish king who would be admonished no more. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool, this is all about hearing, a fool has no delight in understanding but in expressing his own heart. 18.13, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. 18.15, the heart of the prudent acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise Seeks counsel. Also, Proverbs 20:18 speaks to kings. Plans are established by counsel. By wise counsel, wage war. And in Luke 14:31 and 32, Jesus said, "Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Did you listen there for the words of hearing in Proverbs and Luke? Before he hears it, the ear seeks knowledge, almost like it's seeing. A king in Proverbs 20 and Luke 14 requires ears to hear counsel and wisdom to consider advice in order to accurately count the cost. Or have we forgotten the very thing that Solomon asked God for as king, a listening heart? Back to Ecclesiastes 4. Even a poor, wise youth would be better than an old and foolish king with no ears. This is foreign and shocking in wisdom literature, a vanity and an enigma. Because wisdom exalts age and wisdom exalts experience. It's the way it should be. Interestingly, we'll soon see in chapter 5, in the vertical, in worship, having ears to hear rather than lips to wag 
is the most important quality to be found in worshipers of God. Keep that in mind for now. 4.14. Here we learn about the poor, wise youth. A little more information. He was poor and imprisoned, perhaps for economic or political reasons. But the youth fights adversity and ascends by wisdom alone to the throne. Verse 15. Moving the story along, it's not as confusing as it may seem at first. In verse 15, we see that the crowds throng to the side of the wise youth in place of the foolish king. And they stand with him, now called the second youth in the New King James and New American Standard. This is not a third person apart from the foolish king and the wise youth. This is still the wise youth who came out of prison to the throne. He's called the second youth not because he's second in line to the throne and another youth is in front of him. It simply means he was second to the old king himself. The point of the whole passage is that the people tired of their old king. But despite the plaudits of the fickle crowd seen in verses 15 and 16, the young, wise king's days are also numbered, waning with his popularity. Craig Bartholomew writes, As far as leadership and government, even if good is provided, people cannot be relied on to embrace it. It's not that there are not solutions and salvation, but so often humans do not want the good and do not want salvation. And they fail to confess that God's law is over even the king. Let's turn to chapter 5 with the vertical relationship with God. After introducing God as the loving gift giver in chapter 2, as the sovereign of the universe in appointing times and seasons in chapter 3, and as the judge who will settle all accounts, Solomon now asks, may God even be approached? In doing so, Solomon brings forward his first imperatives or commands, laying down what God requires, and it is not a casual approach. Walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We must approach the house of God wisely. This means with preparation of the heart, and proper reverence, and so much as in ourselves to put away evil. God spoke through Isaiah, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. God beckons us sinners, come close, draw near, but to listen, not to speak, to hear, not to be heard, not as with the Pharisees heaping up empty words. You'll remember the times appointed by God in in chapter 3, 3, 7. A time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Solomon's Habel, a vanity, an enigma, a a vapor, 
Listen to his father David in Psalm 62, 5 through 9. Listen for Habel here, and you'll understand how men on earth must approach God in heaven, as in 5 2. In godly fear. My soul, wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. That's why we don't come talking. He only is my salvation, my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. That's prayer. But you see, David first confesses God is his all, his all in all. Only then does he deign to pray, to speak. But listen for Habel. As David now makes himself smaller and smaller, God is a refuge for us, Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree, Solomon, are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than, than vapor. Lighter than Habel. That's even more insignificant than the vapor we've seen in Ecclesiastes. And look where David's son Solomon is in Ecclesiastes 5. He's in the temple. The man of high degree, Solomon, the wise king, who surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, knew that the fear of God meant considering himself less than a vapor. Preaching is primarily our purpose for gathering around Christ in Christian community. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 about his own preaching. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and a power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. A wise person once told me. When I find it difficult to follow a sermon, I know that I must adjust the tone of my listening. That means not asking God to change the tone issuing from the preacher's mouth, but to adjust my hearing, to check my motives, contentment, attention, and humility. Charles Bridges, mid-19th century commentator, wrote, Worship in spirit and in truth must mellow the heart and dispose it to hear with profit. Otherwise, God's spirit is grieved and withdrawn. 5.3. For a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Solomon here quotes a proverb to make the point that the fool in worship and prayer is just as likely to multiply words in vain as does one who overworks for pointless gain, heaps up empty dreams. Our personal and business cares 
should be left in the hand of God rather than becoming another means of worshiping ourselves. Four through six. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? Solomon here very nearly quotes Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23 as regards making voluntary vows to the Lord. God is worshipped in word and in deed. Our deeds should always match our words and vice versa, just as God's deeds always match his words. Jesus encouraged us in that sense to let our yes be yes and our no, no, to speak the truth and without hypocrisy. Vows are generally not necessary in life, and we should not be hasty in making them. But when we make a vow, we should fulfill it without delay. The messenger of verse 6 may be a messenger from the priest inquiring about the keeping of the vow. The point being, do not grieve the Lord's messenger any more than you would grieve the Lord in making a hasty vow or being tardy in fulfilling it. Again, it's the danger of a casual approach. And as a help, do not forget that God does not need oaths and vows. They're for us who lie. The fact alone should help us guard our words and be sincere in word and deed before God. The last verse, 7. For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. Again, as in verse 3, Solomon quotes a proverb reiterating that vain imaginings and making haste of many words are vanity. These will obtain no hearing from God. In response, Solomon sums up the proper approach to God in worship as, but fear God. In Proverbs 9.10, Solomon himself wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so reverence to God and his word with listening ears and teachable hearts is the Christian's position in worship. Craig Bartholomew points out that Solomon in 5.7 now identifies as folly the vanities and enigmas of life that had left him so frustrated and even despairing of life throughout this book. And the source of these vanities and mysteries is in not listening well to God because of the multitude of our dreams and our words. Although Solomon's journey does not end for another half a book, this gives us important hints into a possible resolution of his struggle to understand life under the sun, specifically seen when the dreams of people are set against the plan of God. In conclusion, the two great commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. As we've seen in chapters 4 and 5, Solomon had scarcely mentioned God in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. But almost in reaction to that omission, Solomon in the first person suddenly vanishes here in the temple. The book to this point had been much about Solomon and his observations. I saw and I did that. But here in the temple, 
King Solomon had become small. Much as in Psalm 73, after observing all the same oppression and the prosperity of the wicked, the psalmist was finally satisfied when he came into the temple. When I thought how to understand this, what he was seeing, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Earlier, we read Proverbs 18:24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Who is this friend? John 15, 13 through 16 reads. We're doing real good on time. John 15, 9 through 17 reads. As the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain remain that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you these things. I command you that you love one another. The lone, isolated miser rejected his brother, just as we all had. But Jesus ran after us when we turned our backs on him, just as the lonely miser. He placed a guiding hand on our shoulder and he said one word, friend. As a man, Jesus took a hold of us in the horizontal, as God in the vertical. So let us thank God for making us the temple of the Holy Spirit as we approach him in service and our neighbor as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you all praise and honor and glory for your marvelous word. We pray, Lord, that we will study it all the more and pray to pray for our neighbor, to pray for those surrounding churches in this community, Lord to get out of doors, to get out of that bed, to really make time and help others. And of course, Lord, to defend your honor in your place. In Jesus' name, amen.